Yeah, how calm I remained when he lunged at me. But one of the techniques that I teach my clients is called stop. And the S stands for literally just stop what you're doing. The T is for take a breath. So you can switch on your rest and restore system within three minutes. If you haven't got three minutes, even a couple of breaths where your exhale is longer than your inhale, you're going to be doing yourself some good. The O is observe. So what's going on for me right now? Why can be quite judgy. If I say why out, out loud, I imagine a kind of a finger waving at me. Whereas if I say what, it's a bit more open. And then the P, and P is proceed, is how do I want to proceed? If you've calmed yourself down with your breathing, observe what's going on for you. You've got new information. So now I have that new information. What do I want to do? Can you, um, sorry, can you read it to me again? Because I sure. said that. Did you switch off? Okay, good. I'm going to, I'm going to welcome you again. Lisa okay. Quinn, executive coach. About the term, so I've been talking to lots of life coaches and executive coaches. You call yourself an executive coach, but... I call myself an executive and career coach. It's a funny old phrase, isn't it, executive coach? It always makes me... It's a bit 70s, I think. And I've had a debate about this, about what I should call myself. And one of my clients said to me the other day, you should call yourself a leadership coach, Lisa, because that's what you do, is you help people work out how they want to lead, what kind of leaders they want to be, and how they want to lead their team. But yeah, you can absolutely call me an executive and a career coach. Well, the one thing I have discussed that you can be 100% certain about is that it means everything and nothing in that you've got a whole range of people. Some of them are indistinguishable from therapists, right? And they, they, do, they do their various things, so they're hypnotists or psychotherapists. But some of them have no training whatsoever and mm-hmm. get by on personality. Yeah. We could, we could mention my last podcast guest, and I think it's fair to say he wouldn't mind me saying he's one of those that isn't trained. Yep. But... Is doing so, must be doing something right because he's got a kind of roster of clients that pay him a lot of money to... Absolutely. He described... I mean, I loved that podcast. I thought he was so punchy and described himself as the top 1% of coaches in the, in the world, right, with, with no training at all. I would come from a different school of, school of thought to him. There were a couple of things. One is I know lots of successful coaches who have been trained and certainly my school of thought is... I couldn't have been a coach if I hadn't have been trained. You know, I was a former comms director. And my job was fixing things. And my job was, here's a creative pro- or here's a problem from a client or, you know, an organisation. How do you come up with a menu sometimes of three beautiful solutions to it? And that was my job, problem solving. And as a coach, your job is to create the space for the client to solve the problems themselves. And I definitely could not have done that without training. You know, my training really unpicked a lot of what I had learnt and taught me, gave me a framework to do it differently. And I think that where I would, I guess I would differ from him is I have been asked about my training. I've never been asked by an individual client about my training. No one's ever, has ever asked me, but I do get asked by organisations. The organisations that I coach for, they definitely have asked me about my qualifications and I suspect that's where the difference is. I also wonder whether there's something about, you know, he started a long time ago and he's hugely experienced and has built up his brand and his reputation. I think over the last couple of years, there's been an explosion in people going into coaching. And I wonder whether that would be different now that actually to have more credibility um, with clients that 
it helps to have some of kind of training. I, I, I don't know. I can only speak about my own experience. And I heard his kind of thoughts about the International Coaching Federation, which he's right, you know, coaching is not regulated and that's not great for anyone, actually, I, I don't think. And I don't think that the ICF is perfect by any means, what organisation is. But I think it's a good place to start in terms of making sure that if you're choosing a coach, they've been through a certain amount of rigorous training, that they've had to pass an exam. But that's my point of view. You know, he has his, his point of view and he's it's totally it works for him so I think clients have to choose the coaches that are going to work for them and chemistry sessions for me just as he does his chemistry sessions with his clients for me those chemistry sessions are about them finding out what they need to find out about me and me finding out what about what I need to find out about them so that we can see whether we trust each other and whether we can create the connection and create the space for them to be able to do the work because they don't do they, I don't do the work they do the work I suppose this is one of the things that's maybe difficult to understand from someone who hasn't hasn't experienced it. Mm-hmm. You've got people, whoever they, they are, for whatever reason, they're paying good money. Bless you. <laughs> they're, they're, they're paying good money to a coach. And generally the person paying, they, they know better about what they're doing. Absolutely. You, know, you can't go yeah. and tell them how to do their job better. And, nope. and they're presumably they've had, some, they've had some success, otherwise you wouldn't be there. Uh, so you're kind of thinking, well, what does, an, what does another person no, and, and it's funny, you mentioned about Michael Sower, my last guest. I really liked him as well, and I really enjoyed talking to him, and I could see why people paid him money. He's a very winning personality. But mm-hmm. when I went back and listened to the podcast later and thought about it, I realised I still wasn't exactly sure what, what he what did. What he did. I know that's, that's, like, that's, <laughs> like a, that's a huge failure on my part as I sat down an hour with him and... and, and and he obviously, it worked on me, whatever, yeah. the chat. He was very and charming. He's very charming. Yeah. But I kind of think... What is it that you do? Uh, and I, I think I, you know, people would think, oh, I could maybe do that. I could be someone's yeah. highly paid, charming friend and hang out with them. That's, yeah. that's amazing. But presumably there's a limited market for that sort of thing. And also it only fits a certain amount of people. Other people, I guess you've got to offer something. You've got yeah. to say, this is what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And I think that the interesting thing that he said about being friends with his clients, one of the things I always say to my clients when I have a chemistry session with them is that I'm not your friend because they don't need friends. Do you right? say it to them like that? Yeah, I do. I say, if you're hiring me, and it's in my terms, if you're hiring me to be your coach, you're hiring me to be your coach and not your friend. And I have to say that. My, my coach, I worked with my own coach to get that in my terms because... You know, I like to be liked. I'm a human. We all like to be liked. And for me, actually, it's really clear to me that when I'm working with a client, I have to be prepared to say the things that would get me fired because otherwise I'm not doing my job properly. And it's always in service of them. It's not, you know, I don't want to do that to to, um, deliberately, you know, um, cause trouble for them or be provocative. But that's where I come from. I'm not their friend. And while I'm coaching them, I always say to them, I can't be your friend while I'm while I'm coaching you. And is that okay with you? And that's what we agree together. Because actually for me, what and and you're right, he talks a lot about himself, I thought, rather than what he did. And so I'm really happy to share with you kind of how I coach. So basically for me, coaching is about creating a safe space for the client to do their own work. So typically I would start a session, you know, if I'm signing up a new client, we will talk about what do they want? What do they want from their career? What they, Where do they want to get to? And my job is to help them work out what things are getting in their way and, you know, that they might want to stop and become aware of and stop. And what are the things that they are doing already brilliantly that they can do more of? 
half the time they don't know those things so my job is to sometimes reflect things back to them so to give you an example I had a client yesterday amazing woman she's so creative and we were doing a, an exercise to um, a visualization exercise and her creativity just blew me away and she said to me I'd never thought of myself as a creative person before so that creative creativity was there already right she just wasn't aware of it and um, more often than not we don't talk about you know my clients I work on the basis that you are an expert on yourself you will know way better than me the things that are going to work for you the strategies that have worked for you in the past you know your job better than I do it's not my job to tell you how to do your job it's my job to help you work out how to do your own job better and so actually I don't know I don't need to know a lot about my clients role I will sometimes say to them you're giving me context and I don't need the context I just need to know how you feel about it or I need to know what you think is getting in the way of it so if they, sorry to interrupt so if they, so if they start going to, into specifics about yeah. the job so so you're more interested in the feelings that yeah brought up I'm more interested in their thoughts about that job their beliefs about that job where they're using their values for example in that job or, or not so um, values are a big part of the work that I do with clients and by values I mean the things that make you tick so values are implicit in us you know they're, they're often a great way of working out what your values are is working out what irritates me what are the things that really irritate me and typically if things irritate us it's because one or more of our values is being pinched in in some way so to give you a really minor example, I never used to be able to go into Cafe Nero because Cafe Nero, when they do that thing with the coffee and they go, what would you like? What would you like? What would you like? What would you like? And you stand there and you wait for eight people in front of you to get their coffee. It used to drive me bonkers. And I, my husband was like, for God's sake, Quinn, like, it's not, it's not that bad. And I was like, no, I just, I can't bear it. And actually I worked out that for me, it was about efficiency. Like I didn't think it was a very efficient way. I didn't think it was a very strategic way to make coffee. And I have values around efficiency and being strategic. So that's a, like a minor example of where things irritate you. But also I have a, a value of honesty. And so for me, not being honest is hard. Like I feel, I, I don't like it. I don't like the feeling. And that's what values are. Values are kind of feeling states. And this client who I was coaching yesterday, she hadn't realised that she had a value of creativity because she works in an industry where there's a kind of, you know, there are creative people and people have creative in their jobs and she doesn't have one of those jobs. And it's about helping her realise what creativity is like for her and that actually if she leans into that and she connects with that, it can help her in all sorts of ways because it's effortless for her. It's not hard for her to do, but she hadn't realised that she had that before what was it what was it you did because there may be lots of people that are creative but don't mm -hmm. know about it what was it yeah. that you did that teased it out of her? so we were talking about um a belief that she has and a kind of a limiting belief that that she has and, and a feeling that comes up for her so um a lot mm -hmm. of my work is is helping clients realize that i'm a mindfulness teacher and i'm a somatically trained coach so for that it's about um helping people get aware of their physical state and we were talking about a feeling that she has about creating boundaries with someone. So delegating work, you know, she's in quite a senior role. She has a tendency to take on more work than she should to kind of put her hand up for things because she, um, you know, she's, she likes fixing. She likes people being happy. She, she's incredibly empathetic. So she's very good at putting herself in, her in, the, in the shoes of her team and thinking, oh, I don't want to put too much stress on them. And we talked about what gets in the way of that. And she said, it's a feeling. 
I feel really uncomfortable. Like we, I say, let's role play it. Let's think about, you know, someone on your team, tell me what you would say to someone if you want to give back some work that you've taken on in this project that you now know on reflection, actually, it's not serving you to take on this work. And she said, just saying that makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I was like, okay, are you okay? Would it be okay for us to look at, look at that in your body and just explore where that is and what that's like for you and how it's showing up? And so I did an exercise with her where we just talked about where do you feel that in your body? What's it like? Give me a metaphor for it. And the reason I did that is because actually thinking about things, either situations or feelings as metaphors can be incredibly helpful for our brain because then we're not in it. Where um, we have a little bit of distance from it and we can see it more objectively. And she described this feeling as this incredibly high brick wall. It was incredibly high. It, she couldn't see over it. It was impenetrable. And, and I said to her, if you're okay to, are you okay to just imagine that you're going up to the wall? You're not trying to change it in any way. You're just going up to the wall and you're having a look at it with a kind of open curiosity. And she said, yeah, I, I can do that. So we just did that for a few, it was probably about 30 seconds. And I was saying to her, you know, what's it like? What's the temperature? Tell me about the color. Are there any colors there? So she was getting really clear about what that looked like, the uncomfortableness looked like for her. And in doing that, I was saying to her, you know, what, what's it, what's going on now? And she said, well, crack, cracks are appearing in it and it's, it's getting smaller. And actually it's not gray anymore. And it's not bricks it's becoming softer and it's becoming more malleable and then I said you know I said okay we, we did that a little bit longer and I said you know open your eyes tell me how was that and she said it was like magic now I didn't do that magic she did that magic and the way that she was describing it was so creative and so clear like she painted such a, an amazingly clear picture for me I said to her I think what you were being there was both instinctive and creative and I think they might be your values and then we talked about how that shows up in other areas of her life and that was absolutely innate in her she had that already it was my job to kind of help her discover it and I think that's what I help my clients do is help them discover their own brilliance because I'm trained and I absolutely have a lot of experience with this my clients are brilliant and that's not because they're my clients as humans we all have this innate brilliantness and it's my job to help them connect with it and realise what's getting in the way of that and, um, you know, how our, how our brains can help us with that, but also how our brains can get in the way. And I listened to one of your previous guests, who was a mindfulness teacher, and she reminded me of something, actually, which I just sent to this client earlier, saying, we feel an emotion for 40 seconds and then it goes. And my client was avoiding that uncomfortableness because of all the feelings and the thoughts and the difficulty that go with that. But when we spent, and it was probably about 40 seconds, looking at her uncomfortableness in a kind of kindly, with curiosity, she was able to see it for what it was and it dissipated. So she realised that she can control that. She now has control. She now has a tool that she can go back and notice the uncomfortableness. And we talked about labeling it as, you know, I'm noticing that I'm feeling uncomfortable. And if you start doing that, labeling, I'm noticing I'm feeling this, or I'm noticing this is happening in my body. What you do there at a cognitive level is you start giving your brain a little bit of space. Your brain is recognizing that you've seen the feeling because our brains produce these feelings in our bodies. Our bodies produce these feelings because they want us to see the feelings. 
you know, they're sending us warnings and going something is wrong. And more often than not, our emotions are like data and they're giving us information about things that we care about. She was feeling uncomfortable because she has a big value of empathy and she didn't want to put pressure on her team. So it's coming from a good place. And it's about understanding that, unpacking that and working out how is that working for me? And how is my value of of empathy going into overdrive and getting in my way? And how can I go forward? And I think for me, that's the difference between therapy and coaching. And there are a lot of similarities. It's about, okay, now that I know this, how do I want to go forward? What do I want to do with that information? That's a very long answer to your question. It was a a great answer. And the the only reason I've got my my (laughs) my hand in there like a child, because I want to say something before I forget. Because I wrote, I wrote a couple of things down while you were talking. It, the um, the mindfulness podcast from a couple of years ago that you mentioned. I mean, that was that that had an amazing effect on me because this thing she said about I think she said forty seconds. Mm-hmm. She did, yeah. How, which is, which is how long a physical emotion lasts in the body if you don't do anything to, yes. to propagate the body and the brain. If you body and the brain, if you just so let this, it go. So yeah. this is this is the. your your stress hormones whatever it is Mm -hmm. flooding around the body Mm -hmm. and just armed with this knowledge all you really need to do I say all it's it's not as easy it's not it's not easy easy, but if you can get through if you can get if you can get a minute Mm -hmm. under your belt without doing anything drastic you know without reacting angrily to anyone or whatever whatever the emotion is going to push you to do if you can get through a minute you can look at whatever the thing is with completely fresh eyes yes. dispassionately and and make make and yeah think what yeah why am I feeling this and how would I want to react to it you know how will I th- if if I'm looking at this tomorrow how will I be well I think it's good if I've been stroppy and said something mean yes. to someone or whatever it, whatever it is whatever your the way you behave when you're letting yourself down and I think there's a really beautiful Victor Frankl quote about this so he's a holocaust survivor and he says I'm going to read it, actually, because I want to make sure that I get it right, because it's really beautiful. He talks about there is um, a space between between stimulus and response. There is a space, and in that space is the power to choose our response. And that's what you're... Can you, um, sorry, can you read it to me again? Because I sure. <laughs> Did you switch it off? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know it's what I did? Fine. Do you know what I did? Uh, you said Victor Frankl. Yeah. I wrote it down, mm-hmm. and I started thinking, is that the guy... You, you put a book cover on your Instagram. I don't know. At some point, it's a really happy-looking old dude. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Someone, anyway. So, oh no, maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was someone else. No, but it might but be. I him. think it's. It must be him it must, because it was yeah. this old, a happy-looking old dude on the on, yeah. the on the cover, and it's all a, and it's an Auschwitz survivor. Yes, and he has. So, so because I started doing that, <laughs> whatever your beautiful quote was. <laughs> I didn't get a single word of it. That's completely fine. I'll read it again. Okay, I'm ready now. You pay attention. Victor Frankl, go. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is the power to choose our response. Between stimulus and response, there there is is a a space. space. And within that space, there's a power to choose how we respond. Yes. Brilliant. And there's a really... So glad I listened yeah, the second time round. It, it, yeah, so something happens, mm-hmm. and this is the thing, something happens and we feel we need to react straight away. Because our fear networks and our brains more often than not get involved, because as your former guest talked about, you know, that's so, that's like super fast, super fast response. And I think actually... 
there are some quite simple one of the the techniques that I teach my clients is called stop and the s stands for literally just stop what you're doing just just pause whatever it is you're doing whether you know you're you're fulfilling a task or whether you're you're in a conversation with someone just stop the t is for take a breath or several because when we breathe depending on you know often if we're agitated or we're excited or we're angry our breathing stops we you know it not necessarily stops but we might you know I know if I'm agitated my shoulders go up and I will breathe and sometimes I'll get quite breathy like my breath my breath will change completely and if you if you take a breath you can reset your nervous system so you can switch on your rest and restore system within three minutes so if you've got three minutes fabulous if you haven't got three minutes even a couple of breaths where your exhale is longer than your inhale you're going to be doing yourself some good so that's the T of the stop take a breath the O is observe. So what's going on for me right now? And you said, you said, why am I doing this? I would give you a different way of asking that question, which is a what question. So what is, why can be quite judgy, like a kind of, you know, if I say why out, out loud, I imagine a kind of a finger waving at me. Whereas if I say what, it's a bit more open, it's a bit more explorative. And you can ask yourself, what's going on? So what am I observing in my body? And that's the O. What are my physical you know, what my physical response is. Do I feel tense? Do I feel cold? Do I feel tingly? Like just observe, or I might not notice any physical responses and that's completely fine. What thoughts am I noticing? Am I thinking, God, that person, I really don't like them. They're really irritating me or they're being really disrespectful. You know, I'm thinking about an interaction I had with my daughter this morning. And one of my thoughts was she's being disrespectful. She wasn't, she was being a 14 year old, but that was one of the thoughts in my head. And observing the thoughts and also the beliefs that you have and the feelings that you have can be really helpful for you. And then the P, so you've got S, which is stop, T, take a breath, O, observe, and P is proceed. Is how do I want to proceed? Now that I have that information, what do I want to do? Because you've got new information then. If you've, if you've calmed yourself down with your breathing, if you've observed what's going on for you, you've got new information. So now I have that new information what do I want to do? So this morning, when I had that, you know, the new information of actually, I'm my, my story is that she's not respecting me, I'm noticing that I'm feeling she's not respecting me. Once I had that information, I was able to choose, I'm not going to shout at her. Now, I don't always manage that, right? I mean, I'm a human being, there are times when I when I shout and I get it wrong, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But that tool and mindfulness definitely helps me be more aware of my physical state what is going on for me in my body and that can be really helpful in helping me to gain that time to pause to recognize that space to choose my response what is it what is it with thinking people are disrespecting us what because you said that about your daughter and Mm -hmm. and um i i have sometimes the same thing with my own approaching teenage daughter who i absolutely adore and Mm -hmm. who is wonderful but you know we can we can wind each other up mm-hmm. as well yeah and yeah this 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 feeling and i think it's this is the cause of every street fight as well is, yeah is that people think someone's disrespect it's all about people thinking someone's disrespecting them it's and like a fundamental human need we want to be we want to be respected and I think that it's also a story that we have about, you know, I know I'm not necessarily conscious of it, but I know I'm thinking about how I was with my parents when I'm thinking about, you know, it's about our identity. So for me, it's about my identity as a mother, like what kind of mother do I want to be? 
and actually I believe that you know I I want I want to respect her and I want her to respect me so it comes from a place of what I'm wanting I'm wanting to be respected and then I will put a story over it or my fear networks will put a story over it which is she's not respecting me because of the way that she's talking to me or the, something that she's saying and that's about and actually if I put myself in her shoes and sometimes it's true she's not being respectful and other times it's like no it's not about that at all it's about what's going on for her you know she's trying to get out out the door, there's stuff going on for her, she's quite busy, she's quite stressed, she's anxious, it's like trying to put yourself in their shoes and trying to understand, for me it's about trying to understand like what's going on for me, you know we can't, we're not responsible for other people's actions and how they behave but we are responsible, the bit we can change is ourselves. Exactly yeah Mm. because you you say say, even if she is being disrespectful, Mm -hmm. even if someone else does do something bad to you on whatever scale, that's not within your gift to control but you can control how you respond and that's back to your stop take a breath observe and decide how to proceed and I know I'm going to get a better I'm going to have a better relationship with her if I pick my moment you know when she's home from school she's had something to eat she's a bit more relaxed if I say to her I didn't like how you spoke to me this morning and she's like what did I do and we I explain it a bit more I'm going to get a better response from her if I've given it a bit of time and I've thought about what I want to say and how I want to say it and the tone of voice I say it in rather than you know if I shout at her she's just not going to listen it just doesn't go anywhere with my daughter if you raise your voice at her and speak to her in a certain tone she's she's switched off already yeah this is this is also another Bless you. Did you say bless you when people call? I don't know. There isn't, a, there isn't a word. <laughs> I meant, I, all I meant was, very what polite. I meant was, it's fine. That's how I'd say too. I forgot what I was saying. Oh, yeah, the linguistic point you oh. made. You, you mentioned this when we were speaking on the phone, and I'd never, I'd never thought of it. I'd never thought about the difference between what and why. And, mm-hmm. and you, you mentioned it to me, and I, and I really thought about it. And obviously you can use what what the fuck are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You can use what badly, but as, as a question you ask yourself when you're observing, mm. as soon as you say, as, you, as soon as you say why, mm-hmm. th- there's an implication generally that, that why is this bad thing happened? Or why on earth are you doing that? Why did you call me this? But mm. as, as soon as you sort of ask what's, what's happening, mm-hmm. you're looking at a situation as though you don't, as though you you don't know you don't have any you don't have a dog in the fight or whatever the expression is you just mm. you've come across this situation right what's what's going on here mm. which you which you could do in it for a good thing a bad thing whatever it was you walk into a room you don't know what's happening and you what's going on here yes and you're not going in loaded with fear and anger and what and uh, if this if this I'll do this and all going through this stuff in your head you just as dispassionately as possible saying right what's going on here what's mm. what's happening here because then the answer can be anything as soon as you say why why mm. why you know it's, it's loaded isn't it yes and it I, you obviously couldn't see then what your body was doing but I'm sitting at a table opposite you and so I could see and the difference in your body language when you said why the difference in your facial expression in your body language when you said why to when you said what was palpable it was so different because when we say why we're assuming that the other per- like there's a kind of even if I say it in my body there's an assumption that something is wrong. Whereas if you ask what's going on, it's just much more exploratory. And I think the words we use are really important. And often coaches are trained to ask open questions. We're trained to ask, you know, what's going on here? Um, You know, what does that mean to you? Um, 
do you want to say more about that? So that you're opening things up for your client rather than shutting things down. And I think, as well as the words that we use, I think the tone of voice that we communicate in is really important. And often when we ask why, our bodies, even if we're not aware of it, you were screwing, you were kind of scrunching up your face and screwing up your face and, and like being like, why? So even your, um, you know, the physical, the, the stuff that's going on for you that my body is responding to, that I'm not aware of, the unconscious signals that I'm picking up from your body, if you ask me a why question will be different to the unconscious signals that my body picks up if you ask me a what question. And so that's why it can be really helpful. Just if you change nothing else, try and be aware of when you ask a what question as opposed, you know, try and ask more what questions and less why questions, I would say is a really good place to start to have more productive conversations with people. And with yourself as well, because it, uh-huh. you, you, when I, I took it more about about me, when I'm asking, you know, what's you know what's what's happening here, but yeah, equally with other people, but yeah, conversations with yourself, because you're not because people get pissed off because they feel things are unfair towards them. Why mm-hmm. is this happening? Why yeah. are? But yeah, just asking yourself the questions as well makes a big difference. It, it does, and I think when I'm, you know, that what's going on here, it's just it puts you in a different space. Why will sometimes put you in a kind of victim space, as in the world's against me, and you know, sometimes the world it can feel like the world's against us. Whereas if you ask a what question, it's more expl- like it sends us to a different part of our brains. A why is a shutting down question. A, a what is a, is an opening question. And I, you know, saying about questions to ask yourself. I have convers- we all have conversations with ourselves all the time, but I think one of the things I've learned, certainly through my coaching training, but also through my mindful self-compassion training, is, um, and every time I say that now, I'm thinking about your previous guest and thinking what he would say about me mentioning my training. Interesting that I'm noticing my inner critic there. No, it's good. You, I like <laughs> the fact that you've got loads of training. In fact, to be honest, when I, when I first looked at all your creds mm. i thought it's too much to be honest i don't know where to start because there's loads of words in there i don't understand. like why is that well because there's loads of, there's a few words in there i don't understand and i'm going to yeah. ask you some of those now because i asked you about a couple of them on the phone and mm. there was some really interesting stuff i don't want to talk because because you've got lots of qualifications we can't talk about all of them <laughs> but i'll pick one of the things you said a minute ago actually um you said you were somatically trained yes Somatically, and you, you so explained this to me on the phone. But mm-hmm. um, could you, for, for my listener and for me, in case I've forgotten, could you explain again yes, what it so is? Yes. So I'm tr- I'm a trained somatic coach, and by that, um, it, you know, the simple way is that to understand that is that I'm trained to understand the wisdom, help clients understand the wisdom that we have in our bodies, because the wisdom are, that we have in our bodies, the wisdom that we have in our bodies, like we have tons of wisdom in our bodies, and that's not some kind of woo woo stuff. Sounds a bit hippieish. That's sounds deeply hippie-ish. Just bear with me. Yeah, it sounds deeply hippie-ish. Actually, it's based on neuroscience. We have, you know, we have brain, um, we have brain cells in our guts. We have brain cells in our hearts. Um, and actually, if you think about it, physically, we're we have physical responses to things. Just as your face screwed up when you said a why question, that's because your body has a learned response to asking a why question. So our bodies have patterns for doing things. I will have. A physical response like if you ask me about where I feel an emotion it will be in a particular place in my body and there's been a an amazing study done about this about where people feel certain emotions in their body somatic coaches are trained to 
help clients get to know the kind of their own shape and how that can be working for them or or working against them. So to give you an example, I work with a client at the moment who, when he started coaching with me, he was like, I don't know if you can help me. I suffer really severe panic attacks and anxiety. He's got a really senior job. He works, you know, he works in quite a challenging company. It's a tech company. He's on the board and he reports to one of the founders who is quite a challenging guy. And he was like, every, you know, once a month we have these board meetings and I literally throw up beforehand like it makes me feel sick I said to him I don't know if I can help you either I have no idea but you know let's I my instinct is is that let's give it a go and we see we'll see where we go and um, we agreed to do six sessions together and where we started was helping him understand his physical response because we tend not to go from naught to ten you know it's it was helping him understand where does it start? Where does that pattern of response that I'm going to go and throw up before that board meeting, where does it start in his body? And helping him understand what were his physical responses? How were they showing? How was it that kind of story around? I have a story around I'm going to I'm going to throw up before a board meeting. Where does that start in your body? And helping him understand his physical response so that he could become aware of it in order to change it. And that was things like, he was like, you know, well, it will start off. And I could see it as he was talking about it. He was becoming more agitated on the call. And I was getting him to, you know, talk about where does it start? Like if, you know, if a 10 is is throwing up, what's a one like? And just getting him to understand that actually when we kind of dug into it and unpacked it more, he had a, a physical response. Like he had a way of being in that run up to that meeting that had in the past had worked for him, like being kind of, you know, on it and sharp and I want to do my best and all these stories that he had that went with how he needed to show up at that board meeting that were no longer serving him, that were getting in the way. And he was, you know, he he is quite a perfectionist and helping him recognise how his perfectionism was showing up for him in his body was really powerful for him. And he's gone from being someone who threw up before a board meeting to now actually... He doesn't throw up. He doesn't have anything. He has, you know, he still, he doesn't love it, but he's like, I can go and I can do my stuff and I can talk and I no longer dread it and I no longer get Sunday night feelings. And I think the difference that I made to him was helping him understand what was going on in his body. What was his physical response? How did it manifest itself? What was his breathing like? What was happening to his heart rate? What did he notice in his body? And I don't think I could have done that as a coach without my somatic training. So it's not like you don't do anything to get rid of it. It's almost like acknowledging why it happens opens your eyes to it and, and that lessens the effect is that and also creating a new story for him so that was about a, a combination of mindfulness exercises giving him an exercise where and I use this exercise quite a lot actually where it's a centering exercise so you imagine that if he wanted to feel more confident for example and um, what I asked my clients to do is imagine and this is from a, a brilliant book called physical I think it's called physical intelligence you imagine an eye running across your body so a capital I running across the top of your shoulders down your middle and across your hips so you imagine your eye it's literally a capital I and I got him to kind of move very gently backwards and forwards to imagine the eye kind of going behind his belly button and going from side to side so you're imagining the eye in your body and imagining that that eye was made up of confidence and we helped him over a couple of sessions and in between sessions I was like okay 
practice connecting with your eye when you're having a cup of tea. When it's a low stake situation, practice connecting with your eye. And what we're trying to do there is literally create a new neural pathway in his brain because actually his brain knows how to do vomiting before a meeting. It knows that really, really well. He's got that nailed, right? He doesn't (laughs) need my help with that. But what he needed my help was, it was helping him create a new neural pathway in his brain to help him connect with this eye and help him get grounded in his body. Because if our attention is in our body, it's not in our brains. Like if our attention is physically in our body, our brains know that we are safe. And doing that eye exercise with him, and it's an exercise that me and my business partner, Nikki, use when we run workshops on confidence. It can be so helpful because you get out of your head and you get in your body. And there's lots of mindfulness exercises that you can do to get you present in your body that can really help you with that and can help you change your story. So you can go from being someone who will say, I'm an anxious person, I feel really anxious before presenting, to actually going, I'm okay with presenting. I don't have to love it, but I'm okay with it and I can do it. And for me, the thing that makes the difference when I work with clients, more often than not, it's a combination of helping them understand the kind of the thoughts and beliefs that are going on and also giving them either mindfulness tools or kind of somatic tools that help them get present in their body. I want to ask you more about the um, the giant eye mm-hmm. because... It sounds like it could be great, but I'm struggling with it at the moment. So it's a great big capital I. So it's a capital I. A great big capital I. Mm -hmm. So imagine your capital I. It's probably because I didn't explain it properly. So imagine the top of the I is going from one shoulder to the other, across the across the top. Yes. And then the middle of the eye is going through your body. So it's just behind your belly button. Under the skin. Under the through the middle of you. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. Okay. It's it's totally okay for this. It's not it's not gonna hurt you. If you notice that you think it's hurting you, that's okay. Just notice that thought and just put it to one side as much as you're able. And then the bottom of the eye is running across your hips. And you're just gonna connect with that. And let's imagine, for example, that you want more confidence and you want your eye to be made up of confidence. What material would your eye need to be made from if you wanted to be able to connect with your own confidence? Man, probably Mandalorian steel. Wonderful. Do you know what that is? No, tell me more about Mandalorian steel. Um, my, my boys got big into everything Star Wars and the Mandalorian <laughs> is a is a show on Disney Plus where they have this super tough oh. armor. It's, it's basically armor from another planet. Yeah. That, is impenetrable. So Wonderful. If you wanted, if you wanted confidence, that that seemed like the obvious answer. Mandalorian steel. Fantastic. So now that you know that, I you probably can... called it the wrong thing. I get everything Star Wars <laughs> wrong. It's something like it's something like that. But anyway, so anyway, it's super tough steel. Yeah. Yeah, and and everyone, whenever we do this with clients, they always have their own. Like mine is wood, for example. Yeah. My my eye is made up of wood, and I I don't know why, but it's quite splintered. It's quite old. And sometimes it will have things around it. So sometimes it has kind of velvet ribbons around it. Other times it doesn't. So clients, when I do this exercise with them, when Nikki and I do it in workshops, everyone has a different eye. And it works for some clients and it doesn't work for others, right? Some clients are like, I don't know what you mean. And that's completely fine. And we try other things. So it doesn't work for everyone. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't, this isn't working for me. That's completely fine. Don't, there's nothing wrong with you. It just means that different things work for different people. Um, but now that you have discovered your Mandalorian, and I'm going to get it wrong, Mandalorian steel eye, you can make your eye whatever you want. So it can be a different material. It's like, what do I need more? If What do I need in this situation? It can change as much as you want it to. So I guess it's just a way of imagining your own, pinning your own confidence to something. Yeah, it's... 
it's connecting yourself physically like it's a it's an exercise to center yourself to help you ground yourself in your body and anyone who does kind of yoga will recognize that you know I'm rubbish at it but I love yoga because it's a way for me to get really present in my body and I think anyone who does any you know exercise you can do that when you're exercising like anything that helps you get present in your body I have a client who she drums and anything that gets you present in your body in that way is going to be good for you it can help build our resilience it's really good for our brains to get present in our bodies I'm quite deep into the yoga now since Ah. since we last met I've got I've got quite yeah I've done I love yoga. a lot of it I, yeah. I, I started it reluctantly through injury mm-hmm. but ended up getting really into it I'm, I'm not super into the whole lifestyle around yeah. it but yeah it's, it's it's amazing for me for if you've got kind of for your body but also I, I, I was able to stop having to do those um meditation programs because I didn't I but I saw the value of meditating but I didn't I never particularly got on with doing it you know so I went I did a, I did various programs the, mm-hmm. the famous one the ball, the ball guy the ball headspace headspace yes. yeah headspace yeah. yeah I found his voice annoying after okay. a while so they've just, got different they have yeah. got different teachers but I, now. I think I think it was just probably run its course but then I started doing yoga and yeah. it kind of took over because for me doing something physical mm-hmm. is much it's find much more useful yeah and I, I, th- I don't I don't get on very well with sitting still and I think that can be a wonderful you know yoga but can be a wonderful way of being present in your body you know mindfulness I say this as a mindfulness teacher you know some people really struggle with sitting still being mindful so I would say I do have a formal practice so I will sit and meditate and that makes a massive difference to my life and I find it hard and when I signed up to do my mindfulness training, I signed up thinking, oh, it's going to be a little bit of breathing. Like, how, how hard can this be? You know, something like nine months of training later. As part of it, I had to go on a course and write lots of essays and that, but I loved, like I'm deeply kind of geeky. I loved the neuroscience of it. The bit I found, I found hard was I had to do six weeks practice of 45 minutes, five times a week. I started it five times. And I tried to say to my teacher, I tried so hard to blag my way through it and say to my teacher, do I, you know, do I have to do this to qualify? Like, is there not another way? And she was like, no, this is, you have to do this. So sitting still for 45 minutes. So most of the time it was a 45 minute practice. Yeah. So there were different things. So there were kind of body scans or there were listening to sounds or there was mindful movement, but it was a lot of sitting. And I found that hard. I still find sitting to meditate hard and yet I know it benefits me massively to do it. There's a difference in my life and how I am and in my work, actually. It's made me a better coach when I sit and meditate and when I don't, because it helps me become more aware of my presence and how I am being. And it gives me the space so that, you know, when I went on holiday with my family and it's four o'clock in the morning, we're standing at the queue at EasyJet and my husband had booked the suitcases. And I remember saying to him, like, have you definitely booked enough? And he's like, yeah, I've definitely booked enough. And we get there and they're like, no, 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 you haven't booked enough suitcases. We have to unpack one suitcase and shove it in the other one at four o'clock in the morning. I have no doubt that that mindfulness and meditation, the fact that I just come off that, you know, six week course allowed me not to lose my shit. It didn't. I could go, right. He didn't mean to do this. He's a good person. You know, his attention to detail isn't great it's like it, it gave me the space and I would not have been able to do that without mindfulness I have no doubt about that without meditating so I know from myself that it's changed how I am 
Having said that, I also recognise that, you know, for me, one of the most mindful things I can do is to walk my dog in the woods. Love it. Totally love it. I will take my headphones off. I'll be like, right, I'm going to be present for 10, 15 minutes as I walk around. And the thing about mindfulness is, you know, a lot of the time your, your mind will wander. Totally your mind will wander. And if it doesn't, then you're not a human because our minds are born to wander. That's what, that is mindfulness. Mindfulness is going, oh, I've just gone to my to-do list or I've just gone to planning and I'm going to gently bring my awareness back to whatever I want to focus on, to whatever I'm paying my attention to. It's not, for me, it's not sitting there and not thinking about anything for 10 minutes. It's being with my thoughts in a non-judgmental way. And every now and again, I might have a moment where I'm like, oh, actually, I was just listening to that sound in a non-judgmental way. But sometimes I'll be sitting thinking, this person's voice is really annoying me. And I'm noticing that this person's voice is really annoying me. Or I'm noticing that, oh, I haven't done my Tesco shop. Or I'm noticing that actually, oh, I've just realised that about my client. And so it's about noticing that and bringing yourself back to whatever you're focusing on. And I do genuinely, I can't remember where I read this, but I read somewhere that the people who find mindfulness, the, the meditation the most difficult, are the people who need it the most. And I would say, as someone who finds me- mindfulness and meditation very difficult I mean I still have a kind of you know slightly teenage response to it as like oh god do I have to it definitely helps me and you don't have to enjoy it for it to help you but I would also say you have to find your own way to it so if you for you if yoga is working for you and helping you be more present in your body fine keep doing it just do more of it yeah, it's just having a structure around it because I find if I if I tried to do this 45 minutes sitting down mm-hmm. that you're talking about I find I'm suddenly in another bit of the house. I've, <laughs> I've suddenly, I've suddenly at some stage, and thoughts entered my head. Yep, and you've gone off. And I've got, I've, I've, yes. I've moved, and then I know, I know. With the, I remember from the for meditation apps, they used to say if you might, don't worry, just bring you bring your mind back in. But mm-hmm. when you've gone off and wandered around the house, I think, oh, this is, this is ridiculous. What, what's happening? And- And I would say, what I would say there is I didn't start at 45 minutes and I don't start with my clients. I will often start at three minutes because it's, you know, my clients are really busy and for them three minutes can, and I know when I was working as a comms director, you know, there were literally times when I was like, I haven't got time to pee. How on earth am I going to have time to do 10 minutes of, of meditation? But a lot of people, most of my clients will say, yeah, I can find three minutes. Or we start off at a minute sometimes. And so we build from there because then they start to notice if you do it and it's like small wins and you do, you know, you do a quite easy or straightforward exercise to begin with. And then you practice that for a bit because mindfulness is a, is a practice. It's a skill and you can learn how to do it. I would never say to someone to go start 45 minutes. It's like, really? It's, you know, it's going to be really hard. But starting at three minutes and finding a way to incorporate it in. So what could you do for three minutes that might be might allow you to bring your attention back to whatever you're focusing on? It could be I'm going to do yoga and for those three minutes in my yoga, I'm just going to try and notice my breath or I'm going to try and notice how my body feels. And that is mindfulness. It's about paying attention without judgment to whatever you're choosing to pay your attention to. I'm well into the mindfulness, but I think it suffers from people thinking it's not it's not enough it's not enough of a thing to because it's so sort of simple in a way. Yeah. But once you once you kind of get into it and understand it, it's a fundamental shift, right? It's a fundamental shift in how you look at things. It's not just caring slightly more, being slightly more careful. It's it's mm-hmm. a real fundamental shift in thinking, which I think I was certainly guilty of this of, of misunderstanding it. Yeah, and I don't do it all the time. You know, there are times when I absolutely am not mindful. You know, if I'm sitting there watching TV, I'm not mindful. 
I think for me, it shows up probably most in my coaching work. Actually, when I'm with a client, it's made the most difference to my clients. And also trying that when I'm, if I know I'm not being my best self, so if I know that I'm irritated by someone or angry with someone or I'm feeling myself getting agitated, that then it's really helpful for me to kind of go, right, hang on a minute, what's going on? You know, if I'm out with my friends and we're out for dinner, I'm not being mindful. Like, I don't know, you know, unless you're... And I'm sure even, you know, monks who study mindfulness will absolutely say this. They're not mindful all the time. You know, there was a, I heard something the other day saying, you know, our challenges with paying attention go back thousands of years. You had monks living in monasteries. It's, it's nothing, yes, our modern life makes it more difficult, but you have monks living in monasteries saying, we find it really hard, our brains wander. So our brains have been wandering since the year dot. That's what our brains are meant to do. They're meant to wander. And it's about how to notice the wandering and to bring your attention back with compassion. Almost like when I'm doing a mindfulness practice with clients, I almost say it's like when you're, it's like training a puppy, you know, you've got a dog, right? When you train a dog, you might have to bring it back a thousand times and you do that with compassion. Or when you're taking a child by the hand, a small child by the hand and crossing the road, if you drag them across the road, you're going to get a very different response than if you go okay, I, I noticed that my mind wanders then, I'm just going to gently bring it back. So it's That's trying. a nice way of putting it. Sorry yeah. to try. That's a nice way of putting it gently. Yeah, gently ushering a child back, you know, gently ushering a child across the road or gently training a puppy. You might have to come back. You know, there's a, a lovely meditation that I listen to and the woman says, you know, come back to your breath a thousand times, come back to your breath. And I think that's a really lovely sentiment because, yeah, you, you probably, I know I'm going to have to come back to my breath a thousand times because I will go and it's, I will notice, often with me, where I notice where I go is planning. I will go to planning. I'm like, oh, I need to do that thing. So even noticing where your brain goes to can be really helpful. It's like, where's my tendency? Where do I tend to wander to? And I wander to planning. Also, also this idea that it's not that it's not bad to think bad things. No. Is, I had a long chat with this, <laughs> this friend of mine, and he's, he's, a, he's a really... He's a really nice guy, Buddhist and stuff. Would never, never does anything mean. He's one of these kind of people. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the bad thoughts that come into your head, yeah. and because we know each other very well, and there's no risk of offending each other, we were kind of sharing some of the uncharitable <laughs> thoughts. I love that that come into your head, and yeah. it, and some of them are getting really bad. And we're saying, <laughs> yeah, but it's just a thought. Yeah. I know you don't want to murder that old lady. Yeah. It's just it's just a thought that's coming <laughs> to your head, and it's okay because you know even the, the nicest people. Sure. Yeah, he's probably the nicest person I know, maybe yeah. one of them. But you know, the nicest people in the world—they have these thoughts. Of course, you do. They don't do, they don't do anything. They, no. they don't do anything about them, and they also don't think they're a true reflection of their personality. Mm-hmm. So, if some really mean thought pops into your head, if you continue playing with that thought and building on it, mm. thinking it's an okay thing to think, that's bad. But things popping into your head—they happen. They absolutely and, happen. And, and to judge yourself for them. Yes. Then you end up thinking, oh, I'm a bad person. Well, then everyone's a bad person because everyone has uncharitable thoughts that, that pop into their head. It's, it's, what you, it's what you do with them. That... And it's how you, you just said something really interesting there with it. It's how you are with yourself when you notice those thoughts. Because often, you know, we will have a bad thought because we're human. Like who, who doesn't have, a, I don't know who, anyone who doesn't have a bad thought because we're human. 
And, you know, things like envy and, you know, comparing ourselves is a deeply human thing to do. And you can notice those thoughts and you can either, you know, ruminate on them and judge yourself for having them and kind of create a story around them and like, oh, I'm, I'm such a bad person. Or you can notice them and talk to yourself with compassion. And often I have to persuade my clients about self mindful self-compassion because they're like, oh, you know, does it mean lying on the sofa eating crisps? And I'm like, I love that description. I'm like, well, it might do sometimes, but not your whole life. No, because, you know, that's not compassionate to yourself. But actually, there's tons of science around mindful self-compassion to show that actually you perform better as a human. You perform better at work. It's better for your physical health. It's better for your mental health. There's an amazing woman called Dr. Kristin Neff, and she's got a whole website that is stacked full of evidence-based scientific research to show that talking to yourself and with self-compassion is incredibly helpful both if you're on behalf of the organization you're working in so if you're in a leadership role it's going to be better for you and better for your team but also for you on an individual level so you're you're going to have better mental health and better physical health if you talk to yourself with self-compassion and I think that's the thing that's made the biggest difference to me as an individual is to learn to talk to myself with compassion so Often my my fear networks in my brain, you know, I'm, I have a big, I have a value around excellence. So I want to be brilliant at everything I do. That can trip me up sometimes. It can mean it can turn into perfectionism. And often how it manifests itself is my brain will wake me up at three o'clock in the morning with an idea about how to make something better. So it might be something that I'm writing. You know, I've popped up recently. I've just uh, launched a newsletter on Substack and I want that to be really good. I want that to be really helpful for the people I'm writing it for. And my brain wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning with ideas about how to make it better. Now, in the past, I'd have been like, oh, that's really unhelpful. Like, why are you doing that? Don't be so ridiculous. And now I go, okay, I'm noticing that my brain is waking me up. It's okay. Like, it's trying to, it's, it's trying to help me. It's trying to protect me. It's trying to do a good thing notice it it's all right we're safe let's go back to sleep and that narrative has made a big difference to me kind of noticing my thoughts and trying to meet them with self-compassion and when you know with clients who come to me and say can you teach me that please it makes a massive difference to them being able to talk to themselves with compassion I think what I do it means I spend less time I notice my negative thoughts more I spend less time ruminating It doesn't mean that I don't get, you know, I still feel really that I feel sad sometimes, I feel miserable sometimes, but I will notice it more quickly. So I'll notice it more when I'm kind of in that state. I'll be like, oh, I'm in my misery pit again. Like, do I want to be here or do I want to get out of it? Sometimes I'd be like, no, I'm going to stay here for a bit, actually. And that's fine. But it helps me become more aware of my state and it helps my clients become more aware of the state. And then you can make an informed decision about where you want to go. And that's what self-compassion has done. I think you said you said before and you said it again fear network mm-hmm. your fear is, is this something you discuss as a thing everyone has there's networks of in our brains yeah it's um it's our fear networks you know our brains are incredibly complicated there ain't so probably the most useful way that I talk about it with my clients is we talk about having a fear brain now actually we have fear networks in our in our brains but it's really helpful to help them understand like when is a decision when is something I'm doing coming from fear And when is it coming from a values place? You know, when am I coming from a place of scarcity and when am I coming from a place of abundance? Yeah, so fear-based versus value-based decisions. This is what I've been trying to... Yeah, so am I making a decision based on, you know, being my best self? Like my knowing, you know, so one of my values is kindness, for example. Am I being kind when I make that decision? 
am I being kind when I say that thing? Or actually, am I being sarcastic or irritated or ego driven or because I have a story about, you know, my daughter not respecting me? Where where am I coming from? I'm just aware that you need to get out of here in a minute. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about polyvagal theory. Oh, yeah, I Can love, we just briefly because it's a difficult word. It's a difficult word. It is, and it's but it's deep, a great it's, concept, and it links into what you're talking about before, I believe, if I've understood it correctly. So polyvagal theory. Yes. Break the word down. Polyvagal is. It's the. It's based on the vagus nerve. We have a nerve running down our bodies, which is the vagus nerve, and um, this is the idea. This is what I learned when I was training my somatic training, and you know, polyvagal theory is is deeply geeky, and some people like it, and some people don't. But in short, it works on the basis that my understanding of it is it works on the basis that we are all mammals. So you're a mammal. I'm a mammal. A lot of our response in our brains and our bodies are based on the fact that we're mammals so our fear networks for example are based on the fact that our brains haven't evolved from 2000 years ago polyvagal theory for me the thing I really took out about it was about the tone of voice that you use when you talk to someone else when that if you if you if you go into a meeting with someone or if you have an interaction with someone and you're coming from kind of an agitated state their body will respond to that their body will read that agitation as, as, as a threat Whereas if you if you're open and you smile at someone and you're in a kind of a calm, relaxed state and you're talking in a calm, relaxed voice, their body and their brain will respond to that. Their vagus nerve will respond to that in a different way. And the place where so for me, it's helped me be really aware of my body language with clients, especially when I'm either you know meeting them face to face or I'm on a call with them, particularly a Zoom call. And it's helped me the area that's helped me the most is probably in my personal interactions actually with my daughter so or my husband noticing the tone of voice that I talk to my daughter in if I raise my voice to her she's gone like I've lost her whereas if I start my conversation and I'm calmer and I'm speaking in in a calmer voice she will respond to me in a completely different way and I've noticed this with clients if you know I my, my clients we, we laugh a lot and laughing is a wonderful thing for humans because it means that we're relaxed like if you laugh at someone and you're laughing with there's a difference between laughing at someone and laughing with someone and when we laugh with someone we're creating a connection with them and they feel like there's a kind of a, an intimacy and there's a connection there and I don't like rock up cracking jokes but I notice when you know we're laughing I have a value of fun too so I try and not make my sessions fun but it just happens that they are often not all the time but you know often it's it's fun coaching my clients because they're funny um I think that polyvagal theory has helped me understand that it's how I show up with my clients and certainly the tone of voice and what my body language is like you know if I sit opposite you and I'm like this and I lean into you going to get a completely different response to me than if I sit back and your body's going to respond to me in a completely different way than if I sit back and I'm kind of more connected to my body and my body language is open and the tone of voice I speak to you in is so how calm I remained when you lunged at me <laughs> yeah, I leant across the table to <laughs> yeah. lunge at you then. You, you didn't move you didn't, you didn't flinch Rich at all amazing what's coming at me what am I going to do that's awesome so people want to know more. it's Lisa Quinn Yep, Lisa. My nan used to call me Lisa. How did, did I, I, do you know why I said it wrong? Yeah. I said it wrong because it's, it's not what people call you, is it? It's no. more Quinn to people. So I, I, I think I think I said it like because it's not your name. I said it funny for some you reason. Said, it's funny. <laughs> how, how, how would you say? So Lisa? I would Lisa. say 
So you can um, you can Lisa find Quinn me, coaching, Lisa Quinn coaching, yeah. yeah. And um, I've just if you want to find me on Substack, I've just launched a newsletter on Substack, which is called Rework, and that's like coaching tips and advice and sharing experiences and insights with people. So that's probably if you if some of the stuff I've said appeals to you, yeah, you can either find my website Lisa Quinn Coaching or I'm on Substack too. You'd go to Substack and search for rework. Yep, search for rework. Thank you. Amazing. Lisa Quinn. Quinn, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Rich. Cheers. It's lovely talking to you. You too. Awesome. Thank you.